Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Hope you had a good afternoon. It was a beautiful uh, afternoon. You know, it was a little bit uh, chilly this morning, but uh, it warmed up nicely. And uh, I was telling Ralph a little while ago, you know, that, that that's all right. It's, it's that time of year. Uh, now if we could just get it to decide what temperature it wants to be, whether it wants to be 80 or whether it wants to be 40. Um, uh, maybe some of us could quit coughing if, if that would be the case. But, uh, you know, it, it's this time of year and it will be what it will be. And uh, pretty soon everything's going to be colored, covered in yellow anyway. So um, that'll be doing its thing as well. Uh, last week, uh, taking a, a little bit of a break from the study in 2 Corinthians, we'll pick that up um, before too much longer. But uh, last Sunday, um, we studied the power of the Savior. We looked at the signs that John shares with us in his gospel account. There are uh, seven, most writers would say, I say eight because I include his own resurrection. But other than that, there are seven signs that John records for us that were meant to uh, help us to believe and to strengthen our faith as those who are already in Christ. This week I want to focus on the prayers of the Savior. Um, and really one prayer in particular. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 17 this evening. That'll be where we take our lesson from. But I do want to start just with, uh, I guess, a bit of a, uh, a more general look at our Savior's prayer life because prayer was important to Jesus. I feel like that can't be overstated. Prayer was important to our Savior. And if I know how important it was to Him, what does that say about how important prayer needs to be for me? You know, we see our Savior in prayer often, especially in Luke's Gospel. Dr. Luke records extensively uh, accounts of times when Jesus would pray. You know, Matthew and Mark also include the baptism of Jesus. John mentions it with the Spirit descending and, and, and resting on Him as a dove. Uh, but Luke is the only one who tells us that in that moment, in Luke 3, verse 21 and 22, he's the only one who tells us that Jesus was praying when He was baptized. I believe he's the only one that tells us in Luke 6, verse 12 through 16, that before he named the 12, his apostles, he spent the whole night in prayer. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28 and following, when Jesus is transfigured with Peter, James, and John with him there, before that moment, it said they went up onto the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, he was transfigured before them. And of course, how can we forget that prayer in Gethsemane? The night before he went to the cross, Luke records it in Luke 22, 39-46. We're more familiar, of course, with Matthew's record of that prayer. Matthew 26, 36-46. But Jesus prayed often. He prayed at important moments of his life and ministry. On more than one occasion, he taught his disciples how to pray. Matthew 6, 9-13, you, you can probably recite those verses. 
Luke 11, 2-4 is essentially the same prayer. It's a little bit different. It seems to be a different occasion. But either way, he was teaching. He gave a model, an example of prayer for his disciples to consider. And then he taught them to pray often, just like he did. In Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13, he tells the story of the friend who comes at midnight and asks for his friend for you know, a loaf of bread. And it's because he's persistent. He keeps knocking at the door that the friend finally gets up and gives him what he asked for. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, the parable of the persistent widow. She comes to this, this judge who is unrighteous uh, in his own right, and she keeps pleading for justice. And he finally gives it to her because she keeps bothering him about it. And the, the implication there is that, you know, God's not like that, that unjust judge. God's not like that wicked man. He's not going to just ignore us and then give it to us because we keep pestering him. Yet, he asks for us as we're praying and waiting for his answer. Because, you know, he doesn't always answer right away. He asks us to keep on praying keep bringing it to him. Always think about that like, um, you know, when your children would ask you about something, maybe there's a, uh, maybe there's like a trip to the zoo or something like that. You're planning to go on Saturday. So come to you on Monday and they ask you about it. And then what do they do again on Tuesday? Ask you about it again. And then on Wednesday and Thursday until finally on Saturday, you can say, yes, today's the day. Why do they do that? Because it's important to them. Well, we need to think about the things that are important to us. Don't stop taking them to God. We may still be waiting on His answer, but don't stop praying and waiting for Him to give the things that, that are right and in accordance with His will. So again, it's obvious that Luke had a lot to say about the prayer life of Jesus. I almost got into another sermon thinking about persistence in prayer, y'all. Luke has a lot to say about the prayer life of Jesus. And, and there's a lot we can learn from what he shares with us, isn't there? But it's John. John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's what he called himself in, in his account of the gospel. John records the lengthiest example of a prayer that was spoken by our Lord. It's 21, 20, no, actually 26 verses long. It starts in, it's, it's the entirety of John 17. Uh, my Bible has a heading, says the high priestly prayer. Maybe you've heard it called the intercessory prayer. I, I, we've, I've heard that used before. Some people like to say that this is the Lord's prayer. Not those examples in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, but this is the Lord's prayer. And that would be accurate. It is a prayer by our Lord, whatever title one wants to assign to it. And, you know, I don't believe those titles are necessary and I don't believe those titles are always helpful. But the, nevertheless, this is a beautiful prayer. It's offered up by our Savior in one of the final acts of his before he's arrested in Gethsemane. And there's probably a lot more that we can say about this prayer that I'm going to have time for tonight. But I want us to notice just a few things together. This prayer, I think, can be divided up 
into three different sections. And maybe, maybe if you're someone who, who writes in your Bible, takes notes in your Bible, you could even write these different uh, ideas or these different parts of the prayer out beside the verses that they, uh, that they coincide with. But it begins with it being a prayer for himself. He begins by praying for himself. Now, when we say that he's praying for himself, we don't mean it's, it's, it's in any kind of selfish way. Because if you, if you read and you pay attention to what Jesus prays for, yes, he prays for his own glorification. Glorify your son, he says in, in verse 1. We're going to read that in just a moment. He prays for his own glorification, but if you pay careful attention, that prayer is really with his eye towards something even greater. He says, beginning in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so, so notice just two things there that Jesus prays for as he's praying about his own glorification. Ultimately, his desire was that the Father would be glorified. Glorify your Son, he said, so that the Son may glorify you. That was always something that Jesus had in his mind. That was always his aim, to glorify the Father. Listen to some things that he says throughout the Gospel of John. John 4 and verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5 and verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6 and verse 38, <coughs> excuse me. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We can definitely take an example from our Lord in this respect that everything that we do, we ought to be seeking to accomplish God's will and bring glory to His name. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's the ultimate goal. That God would get the glory. We don't, we don't let our light shine so that they'll say, oh, that's a good fellow over there. Or that's a good lady over there. No, ultimately we let our light shine so that they will glorify God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. He was talking about a specific subject. That's why he said eat or drink. But then he adds that, 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 that little bit, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That should be the aim of each and every one of us, just as it was the aim of our Savior to do the will of His Father and to glorify Him. And how better to glorify God than by fulfilling the mission that He had been sent to accomplish. 
The mission, I think, was clear. He said in verse 2, it was to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given to Him. Now understand that those given to the Son by the Father, if we go back and read John 6, 39 and 40, those given to the Son by the Father are those who look upon the Son and believe in Him. You know, there's no unconditional election here, no predestination. It's, it's based on the response of those who hear the message of Jesus. The ones who respond in obedient faith, they are the ones who have been given to Him. And the one who is given to Him, He says in John 6, will have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. If we believe and obey, we will have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. And in some ways, in some ways that mission was not yet completed. Jesus still had to go to the cross. He still had to be resurrected on the third day. He still had to ascend to return to the Father and leave the mission to the apostles and to the church. But up to this point, as he's praying in John 17, as he is about to be arrested, up to this point, he has done everything, all that he could do to prepare for the next phase of the eternal plan. He had shown God's glory to those whom he had encountered. He prepared his disciples as much as they could be prepared at that point. Remember he told them in chapter 16, you can't hear everything just yet. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to guide you into all truth. But everything that Jesus could do to prepare them, he had done it. They were ready or should have been ready for what was going to come next. And speaking of those disciples, that's the next part of this prayer. That's the majority of this prayer, the longest part of it, as he prays for the disciples. First of all, mentioning the training that they had received. Start in verse 6. As he's praying, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus' public ministry lasted, what, about three, three and a half years, depending on how you, you, you figure it out. But three, three and a half years was the amount of time he was ministering on the earth between his baptism and his crucifixion. And throughout, he had had those who had followed him and learned from him. There were other disciples besides the 12. We understand that. Of course, on the day of Pentecost, there were 120, or, or not on the day of Pentecost, but leading up to the day of Pentecost, it said there were about 120 who were, you know, staying together because they had been following him. But we mainly focus on the 12, and this may have been mainly focused on the 12, or rather the 11 as they were now because Judas had gone his own way. They were soon to be 12 again when Matthias is added in Acts chapter 1. But they would lead the charge 
carry out the gospel mission after Jesus was resurrected and ascended back to the Father. And everything that the Father had given him to pass on to these disciples, he had done it. He had prepared them for the mission to come. And they were about to be on their own in the sense that he would not physically be with them. Now, they wouldn't be on their own entirely. He promised, he said in John 14 and verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. In John 16, 7 and following, he said that when he went away, in fact, he said it was actually to their advantage that he went away because if he didn't go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit would not come. But that Holy Spirit was necessary. He would guide them going forward. But the world into which they were being sent was dangerous. It's still dangerous. It's been 2,000 years. The world is full of dangers for the child of God. So as Jesus prayed for his disciples, he prayed for their protection as they were being sent into the world. Listen to this, in verse, starting in verse 11. It says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the, word, in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, this, this is a key, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that they be kept from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus, praying for his disciples, you know, he had done everything he could for them to prepare them while he was with them. And only one of them. Judas had been lost going his own way. But now, now he's about to go. They're going to remain behind. They're going to remain in the world, a world that would hate them because of their association with Jesus. And he had warned them earlier in the night about how the world would treat them because they, because they were his, because of his name. He said in John 15, Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I, that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. You know, it would have been easy. It would have been a lot easier. Just take those disciples out of the world. But then how could they fulfill the mission for which they had been trained for three and a half years? Years ago, I heard somebody describe it this way little illustration that taking the disciples out of the world 
would have been kind of like having a boat but never putting it in the water. Now on the one hand, if you don't put the boat in the water, there's no possible way that it can ever sink. But on the other hand, what good is a boat if you don't put it in the water? In the same way, disciples, if they were taken out of the world, they might not be in danger of falling away anymore. But then they won't fulfill their purpose. They'll never be able to share the precious gospel of Jesus Christ with those that are lost. So when Jesus prays about His disciples, He prays not to keep the boat out of the water, but to keep the water out of the boat. He prays that the disciples, while they remain in the world, might be kept from the influence of the evil one who would seek to corrupt and draw them away. He prayed that they would be able to continue in the world, to be salt and light, to preach to the nations. But that through all of that, He wanted them to be protected. And so He prayed in the third place, verse 17 to 19, that they might be sanctified. Sanctify them in your truth, or in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 17. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctified means to be set apart. He prayed that they might be set apart from the world. Even though they were still to remain in the world, he prayed for them to be sanctified and that they would be set apart, sanctified by the truth, which is the Word of God. And that has not changed. Until this day, that has not changed. It is still the truth that sets us free, is it not? John 8 and verse 32. It is still the Word we read about in Romans 10 that brings faith, faith by which one calls upon the name of the Lord in obedience and is saved. Souls are still purified by obedience to the truth, born again through the imperishable seed which is the living and abiding Word of God. As Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1, verse 22 and 23. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If the world wants to criticize you and say you put too much emphasis on the Bible, on the Word of God, let them criticize. Let them say what they want. Because I don't think it's an accident that immediately after asking that His disciples be kept from the evil one, the very next thing that Jesus says when He talks about them being not of the world, He says to sanctify them in the truth which is the Word of God. I know, and I hope to make sure that you know how important, how vital this book is to our survival in this world. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4 and verse 4. Jesus quoting Deuteronomy. As he was tempted by the devil. And he said, uh-uh. Now this is what I live by. 
the very Word of God, the truth. Don't be fooled by Satan's tricks. Don't let the world make you think maybe I shouldn't emphasize the Bible so much. Cling to the truth. Be sanctified in it. And now, look at the last part of this prayer. Jesus didn't just pray for the disciples He had in that moment. He prayed for His kingdom. And I don't know about you, but this is, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I love this passage because I remember many years ago, I heard a song. Maybe you've heard it before. I, I don't, it was in a, in a church setting that, that I heard it. Um, it had a lyric. And when something along the lines of, when He was on the cross, I was on His mind. And you know, I, I don't know how theologically accurate that sentiment is. But I do know this. Right before he was arrested, which would lead to the cross, Jesus was thinking about his church. He prayed for those who would believe through the preaching of the word. And if I understand the way salvation works, that's the way each and every one of us who is a Christian came to faith. Through the preaching of the Word of God. So even if He didn't mention you by name, He was praying for you that night. He was praying for me. He was praying in verse 20 and 23 that we would be united. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also, or that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. I know I've said this before. As much as I love this passage, because Jesus prays for the future of His church, He prays for you and me, maybe in an indirect way, but He's still praying for us. As much as I love this passage, it breaks my heart that the unity that He prayed for has been shattered for so long. And I've said this before, I'll say it again, I cannot help but think that the division that exists among those who claim to be followers of Jesus in the world today isn't at least partially responsible for the lack of interest in biblical truth in the world today. Division is not only undesirable, it's not that we just, it's not just that we don't like it. It's not just that we would rather it not happen. Brothers and sisters, division is sinful. It's right there in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, where, where Paul lists a number of things. He says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right there in that list is divisions and a host of other attitudes and actions that lead to 
division. The plea within the church has always been for the unity of believers. Speak the same thing, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12 and verse 16. Walk by the same rule, Philippians 3 and verse 16. Now we understand. I want unity so bad. But I understand it can't be, we can't compromise the truth for the sake of it. Right? That, that's right there in Philippians 3 and verse 16. Walk by the same rule. Walk by the same standard, which is the Word of God. And I know there are many in the world today who are not doing that. And so we cannot have that unity as long as there are those who aren't walking according to the truth. But let's not let the seeds of division sprout where that unity can be achieved. Because as much as we can, let's, let's fulfill this, this desire of our Savior and though many may not want to hear what we have to say, maybe that, maybe being united, maybe being one, can help us reach somebody with the truth. Two more things real quickly that Jesus prayed for. In verse 24, He prayed that the church might be delivered. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants you to be in heaven with him. Let that sink in for a moment. And I don't know about you, but I was reading this verse the other day and I summarized it in those words. And when I put it in those words, it just hit different, differently. Jesus wants you to be in heaven with him. You know, I always knew that, like deep down, intellectually, I knew that. But to say it out loud, I don't know, it just seemed to have more of an impact. Jesus wants you to be where he is. And he prayed about it. Hours, hours before his hands and his feet were going to be nailed to a Roman cross and he would hang there for six hours his back and his whole body almost torn to shreds by the Roman scourge crown of thorns on his head people mocking him and spitting on him and all of those things going on and he prayed for you when the time is right you might want to add that in there. But he prayed for you to be in heaven with him. Finally, verse 25 and 26. He prayed that the church would be loved. Verse 25 and 26, he said, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. These know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus said to Philip back in chapter 14 and verse 9, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. And through His example and His teaching, Jesus has revealed the Father to His disciples. That includes those who walked with Him for those three years, but also I think it includes those of us who believe through the preaching and teaching of the apostles and prophets. And His prayer here at the end of the chapter 
is that those who have come to know the Father through him would be kept in his perfect love. And we've been discussing that on Sunday morning the past couple of weeks, that, that how are we kept in that perfect love? Well, by loving him, keeping his commandments, John 14 and verse 15, and then loving one another, John 13 and verse 34. Prayer was important to our Savior. I think that's proven over and over again throughout the Gospels. And if it was important to him, it ought to be important to me as well. And so we've looked at that one example of prayer tonight, the longest example of a prayer from Jesus we have in the New Testament, but it's one that speaks so much about his mission and his love for the kingdom. And I think we ought to pray for those things as well. We ought to pray as Jesus prayed that night. Maybe not necessarily the same words, but we ought to pray that our lives might glorify the Father who is in heaven. We ought to pray that we might be grounded and sanctified in the truth, that we might be kept from the evil one as we go out into the world. And that we, might, we, we ought to pray that the kingdom might know the unity that Jesus prayed for that it might be delivered in the last day, knowing what He has promised. And we may know the love of God that He has shown to us. So I hope, I pray, that if we read Jesus' words in John 17, and I would encourage you to go back and read them again, that they can be an encouragement to us. They can help us as we pray, think about what to pray for and how to pray for it. We can be strengthened in our understanding of our Savior and His desire for us. If you're here tonight, He, he desires that we be one, that we be in fellowship with one another. He desires that we encourage one another. He gives an invitation to come, receive the blessings of knowing Him and, and many who, who I know who are here tonight have received those blessings. You are a child of God. You have walked in the faith for many years, but we're all human. We all stumble. Maybe you stumbled along the way. Maybe you need some encouragement from your brothers and sisters tonight. Maybe you have something in your life that you know is amiss and you need to get it right. Now is the time to do that. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. Number 84, is that, that the right number? Uh, that'll be an opportunity. You can come and we'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. We'll encourage you and support you as brothers and sisters ought to do. Would you come if you need to while we stand and we sing this song together?